Welcome to the MMA Formula Podcast. Here's your host, Linda Mayer. All right, everybody. Welcome to episode six of the podcast. And, and it's been months. I know, I know. And many of you have contacted me to see what's up with the podcast. Just being crazy busy, man. It's, uh, you know, well, everybody knows what's going on in the world right now. So uh, that's not news. Things are winding down here. Life is pretty much starting to resume. Um, I would say back to normal, but something resembling that. So, uh, but in the meantime, I'm, I've been extremely busy just, you know, with business, trying to uh, keep everything afloat here business-wise. And that was a, a huge shift now that I'm working more with clients again, because that's allowed again now. And uh, still maintaining all the things I started during the outbreak last year. So that is one of the reasons why there have been that many updates. But, you know, things seem to be settling down a little bit, finding my rhythm again. So I said, well, you know, what better time to get into the podcast again with UFC 264 in the books? And what a card it was. I mean, I'd say what an event it was is maybe better. So before we go on, uh, go on to MMAformula.com forward slash six, the number six. And I'll put the links to the stuff that I mentioned here in this episode there. And also, if you want to support us, uh, go to the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash MMA formula. Bunch of stuff there. I've been trying to, you know, have like every week or so for the past few weeks to post something there. Whether it's just uh, something in the feed or some, some analysis work that I've been doing as well. So I'm trying to keep that rhythm going of like every week something drops there that is only available on Patreon. So if you want to help uh, support the show or also get access to that, head on over to Patreon. Right, that's it. UFC 264. So we had a bunch of fights that that I wanted to to talk about. I'm mainly going to focus on the main card. Um, Not that there is nothing to say about the other fights, but in particular about the Ryan Hall fight. I might get to that later, maybe in a bonus episode. Point is that there were some stuff that that we could mention. So let's start right away. Sean O'Malley uh, basically beat up Chris Moutinho. Moutinho, I don't know how you pronounce it. Sorry, guys. Uh, feel free to correct me in the comments. What a fight! Well, bunch of bunch of things. So um, uh, Moutinho basically took the fight on on a few like a week's notice or something like that. Um, he clearly was outmatched. I mean, O'Malley had his number and basically did whatever he wanted with him. Now, despite that, despite three rounds of taking just an inordinate amount of striking to the head, to the body, but mostly to the head, Mutio just kept coming. He didn't back off one bit. He just And he even gave some lip to O'Malley um, during the fight. Like, <laughs> I'm still here, dude. And talking to him taunting him a little bit like you know is this the best you got and then he got punched some more so I, I got this really strong you know Rocky Balboa feeling of this fight like um, you know <laughs> basically Rocky fighting Apollo Creed just getting beat up round after round and everybody was hoping that you know in the later rounds maybe Chris could pull something off I guess because who doesn't like an underdog right but at this point I think we, we have to be clear about something. Um, several factors. So as I said, Chris was not ready to find Sean O'Malley. He was he's not at the same level. 
there's no disputing that. He hardly landed anything. And Sean O'Malley broke some record, I think, for the bantamweight division, like most uh, highest amount of strikes landed, something along those lines. So he was getting tuned up. Chris was getting basically tuned up. So that's one thing. Second thing is that for all the people getting upset at uh, the stoppage at with 30 seconds left, you know, and even Joe Rogan was going on about, you know, you have to let that guy finish the fight. It It's, it's this thing that people sometimes forget is that the ref is there to protect the fighters. On the one hand, make sure there is um, uh, an, an honest fight that everybody sticks to the rules and so on. But on the other hand, also make sure that he protects the health of the fighters in a sport which is inherently unhealthy, right? Why is that? Well, the fighter has first-hand experience with the opponent, so he sees a very narrow vision of what's going on with the fight. He doesn't spot certain things. The second layer is obviously the coaches. They're supposed to tell the guy what to do, preferably in between rounds, like watch out for this, he's dropping his hand there, watch out you're making this mistake and so on because they have a different point of view and they get different information. And then there's a referee who's standing there really close. He might spot things, the audience, the camera, and the coaches don't see. And he has to make decisions, not just about uh, everybody sticking to the rules, but also like, okay, when is somebody taking too much damage or when do we stop this fight? I think in that regard, Herb Dean made a good, made a good call. Why? I understand your argument about letting the guy finish the fight after, you know, showing such heart. And, and, and Moutinho was, has tremendous heart. There's just no discussion about that. He has the heart of a warrior. So let's, let's just accept that as a given because it's proven that beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and that brings me to the point, was it reasonable to go on? Well, here's the thing. So we used to think that it was a knockout that caused brain damage. That is true, they cause brain damage. Later on, we thought that it was the cumulative damage, the cumulative blows to the head that created the brain damage in the end. Like just taking up punch after punch after punch and then eventually it, it piles up and you get brain damage. We now know, well, and this is the, the, the current scientific consensus, so to speak, is not the right word, but just a the science seems to point out right now that it is not a cumulative effect. Every single blow to the head causes damage, period. Damage that may only manifest very much later in life. Again, look up Gary Goodman, uh, Goodrich, sorry, Gary Goodrich, um, and his uh, basically amnesia that he, that he has right now for taking too much brain damage. I've mentioned that before, but the point is that Chris took a huge amount of shots to the head. So the fact that, that you know, there will be brain damage, how will it manifest? What will that mean for his, for his career? Well, we all know, we should know by now that these kind of wars that you're, you go in as a fighter, they shorten your career and they have a negative impact on your health. So at a certain point, I think enough is enough. Um, if anybody, is under the assumption that Moutinho was going to knock out O'Malley in the last 30 seconds. There was nothing to prove that that was going to be the case. Now, nothing proves the opposite either, except that for, you know, almost three rounds, he didn't get anywhere close to that. He hardly ever 
managed to tag Sean O'Malley with anything, let alone land a solid shot that had O'Malley on wobbly feet or anything resembling that. So the point is that it's not unreasonable to assume that O'Malley would basically keep going that way until the end of the fight. Everything points to that. Second aspect is that O'Malley, at that point, right before the stoppage, was turning up the heat all of a sudden. In my opinion, he figured out that, you know, I've got 30 seconds left. I may be tired, but I can last 30 seconds. And I'm going to see if I can put this guy away. He must be good to fall over after the amount of punches he's had. So now it's just a matter of speeding up a little bit, picking up the pace, landing a little bit harder, sitting down a little bit more on my punches, and I'm going to put him away. And again, watch those last 10, 15 seconds of the fight. And you'll see that Chris was was taking a number of blows one after the other in a short amount of time. So Mali was basically putting a lot of pressure on him and it was not answered. And you can say that, you know, you know, he held his guard up and he tried to do the, the high guard blocking thing. Um, sure, that is not a response. That is a passive defense. That's just standing there taking it. So was he going to get knocked out? I think there's a high likelihood that that would have happened if Sean O'Malley continued to do what he did, which was adding pressure and hitting harder and precise and landing pretty much all those shots. That's the key point. Now, I understand fight fans want to see a knockout. Okay, well, you know, if knockouts happen, they happen. But seeing a guy get beat up is, I mean, that that shouldn't be it. That shouldn't be why you, you watch those fights. That's my opinion. So as for O'Malley... Um, I kind of had the impression that he took the fight a little bit too casually, that he didn't expect this kind of resistance and endurance from uh, from his opponent. I mean, the guy is good. O'Malley's good. He's got great timing and so on. Um, he's he's skilled. He's slick. He's got a lot of tricks up his sleeve, and uh, he managed the distance well and so on. I, I I don't think he got tagged by anything really significant. So defense was pretty good as well. So overall, a, a good performance by him against somebody who he could beat easily. So we didn't learn much about O'Malley other than that his injury seems to have healed correctly and he can move just as well as before. What I did notice is that a few times, especially second and third round, you could see him take a deep breath and reset. So and that means that he was getting maybe a little bit winded or that it was a lot harder than he anticipated. And, and, and that is interesting to know, obviously, if you can force him to fight on back foot, which is, as one of the commentators mentioned, very tiring, costs a lot of energy. If you can push him, and then if you can add to that, maybe scoring some, some techniques, um, O'Malley might be more vulnerable than people think. But a key point to his style and what he can get away with and what he can do is three, three things. O'Malley is very technical. He's got pretty good technique. Um, he's pretty fast, maybe not the fastest guy in the division, but he's, he's pretty damn fast. And at the same time, he typically has the reach advantage over his opponents. This is very similar to what we have with John Jones, who's very often the, the guy with, with, with the longest range and the tallest guy uh, in the octagon when he's fighting. O'Malley has a similar thing. Now, I would want to see him find somebody who who is his size, 
or taller. And then we'll see if he's overly reliant on those physical attributes and, and technical attributes, or if he's actually um, the good fighter that I think he is. So we'll see. Um, I don't know what's next for him. He called out a bunch of people, Peter Jan and so on. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, again, with the UFC, we never know what's going to happen. There's a lot of bullshit fights and, and matchups that they do. So who cares? Just watch the fights and see what happens. Don't get too excited about, you know, people getting called out. doesn't mean anything until the UFC matchmakers decide, you know, what can make us the most money. Right, to that side, next one. So it was... Irene Aldana versus Jana Kunitskaya. I was surprised by Kunitskaya as she came out, like especially the first 30 seconds to a minute, the the, the shouting as she, she was striking, uh, uh, whatever, I mean, to each his own, but I don't think that's it. That's uh, something you really need to do, but, you know, if it makes her feel better and it helps her, I know, via con Dios, go ahead. Thing is that she was more aggressive than I was used from her and also seemed to be more focused and, and ready to do battle. And Aldana kind of weathered the storm in the beginning and, and she was fine. And then it broke down. Eventually we get that that uh, very nice hook from Aldana that put Kuniskaya on the ground and some ground and pound a little bit later, it was over. Um, I think it, it only proved that Aldana is a superior fighter here. I don't think we learned much more from what she can do from this fight. What I think we did see from Kunitskaya is that she's pretty much at um, the plateau of what she can do. So she's 31, which means that, I mean, she doesn't have a lot of time left in the sport. If, if we are going to be realistic, she's not going to fight until she's 50. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So um, the... The best part of her career, I think, is over. And we can also see what her development has been like. I'm going to point something out. Now, one of the ways in which you can see that I think she's she's limited in her potential is that I, what she has is um, superficial power and lack of inter internal organization or structure. Let me explain that. So... She did a couple spinning back fists. The way she does them, it's swinging the arm around. There's no acceleration. There's no whip. There's no cracking the whip, which means that as you spin, you bend the elbow and you extend it. Now, you can do it with a straightened out arm. It is possible to do that, but then the rotation needs to be performed correctly. Kunitskaya basically turns around and swings that arm. There's no solid connection between the rotation at a pot the potential extension of the elbow and or uh, the rotation of the arm. So the, that connection is not solid enough. And you can see that she misses with one and eventually she does land one and it doesn't do a thing. It lands and Aldana just like hardly even notices it. That shouldn't happen. And that's my point. Now, the next aspect in which you see it, look at the body kicks when she throws them. And what you'll see is that she does a, she does the the round kick to the body, and her leg basically impacts as it is straightened out at the knee, which means she has a superficial impact and it doesn't dig into the body of her opponent. Um, a, a good way to try to understand that is that if you just stand in front of a tree, you grab a stick 
and you swing it by just rotating your arm. Um, the moment of impact, then that's it, that's pretty much stops. If you just swing your arm into a circle, you hit, and then as soon as the stick hits, that's pretty much the end of it. Compare that to chopping down a tree. What will you do? You will step into the rotation as you start swinging horizontally. And then you're going to try to drag that axe into the tree. So you're going to try to go deeper with that swing as opposed to just swinging a stick. This is typical Muay Thai style. There's other ways to, um, to develop power. But if you're going to throw a body kick, you, and if you just do this snapping kick, more or less, or you, what she does, super superficial power, that's not going to do a lot of damage. Now, you don't have to pick one. Wonder Boy is one of the examples of somebody who doesn't fight Muay Thai style, and he makes it work for him. I'll talk about that in a minute. But the point is that Kuniskaya doesn't have the power she could have because she clearly has the physical attributes to be very strong and, and hit hard. It just doesn't seem to come together. And this is one of the things I've always noticed about her is that she, I think she has all the qualities she needs, but she, something is lacking that, that it all comes together. She could be a lot more explosive, but I don't think it's there. My guess, and this is just a guess, obviously, is that it has to do with coordination which some people don't have as much. And that brings me to the internal structure thing. Um, it's the way that you organize your body. And with that, I mean your muscles, your joints, tendons, and so on. The way, what do you contract? What do you relax? What is concentric contraction? What is dynamic contraction, static, and so on? Um, the way you organize that to get the most out of each technique. Now, I'm going to draw an example from grappling. Let's say you're you're on the bottom and somebody is in side control. If you work with a guy who's your weight, your size and so on, and he's a white belt, and he basically maintains top control, that'll feel one way. Grab the same guy, give him, I don't know, 10, 15 years of training. He's a BJJ black belt then. Put him back in the same side control, top, uh, top position. And feel the difference. He's going to crush you. Imagine he weighs the exact same thing, is just as strong as before and so on. But technically speaking, he'll have learned to maximize pressure on you. Instead of just lying on top of you and muscling everything, he'll have learned to use everything from muscle control to rib expansion to everything. So he is the heaviest possible on you. That means that he knows how to internally organize his body joints, muscles, creating tension, creating lack of tension, and so on, to get the result he wants to optimize each technique. I give the example of side control. Obviously, the same applies to every single technique and every single part of every single technique. So what, what Hicks and Gracie called invisible jiu-jitsu is that you don't see it, but it, it, it sure as hell makes a difference when somebody is good at that stuff or not. So, and this is when you get into the, the deeper levels, the more technical aspects of the game, then you discover that there's a whole new dim dimension there of technical expertise that you don't necessarily see. But when you experience it, you're like, what is going on here? This, this feels so much worse than anything I've ever felt. 
Well, you know, go work with a high-level striker. You'll experience it. Same thing, high-level grab grappler. You'll experience it here. My point is that I don't... I think Kunitskaya, she's lacking that. And I don't think she'll ever get it. Nothing against her. Again, my feeling with her is almost more like this is like a shame. It's it's like an, an unfulfilled potential. She has a potential and it's just not coming out. And that's always sad to see. Again, she might surprise us. I thought, again, she, she, she did better in the first 30 seconds than I've seen her do before. So I thought that was good. But then it just all fell apart. Right, that's it. Moving on, next one, the heavyweight, the big boys, tied to Ivasa, <laughs> knocks out Greg Hardy. Ah, what to say? Greg Hardy, you know, he's, he's not been in the in the sport all that long. We know his uh, his uh, um, professional sports background, so it's only been I think about four years that he's been training MMA or at least competing. So that's for for an athlete that's pretty late in the game, but still. I think he did show a little bit of improvement. He, his jab was pretty nice. He didn't use it all that much. Didn't get the chance to do it, but he had a few times that I that I saw him throw, throw the jab that I thought was that was nice. He had this nice moment when Tuivasa does an inside leg kick and and he rips Hardy's leg off to the side and Hardy instinctively uh, throws that that big straight shot and actually manages to tag tie with it, uh, just just covering up for the fact that he's just losing his balance and then just smacking his opponent in the face with his fist um, as he does that. So so that's a trick. That's a neat trick. You Obviously, you practice it, but you got to pull it off in a fight. And he did. So in that front, I think Hardy has made some progress. But the way the fight ended, yes, you see your opponent is hurt. You see him wobbling. The worst thing you can do is rush in. Now, to give props to Hardy, he didn't just run forward. He rushed in, he did a little bit of feint, and then he threw that 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 long uh, left hook. But that one left him out of position. He had his back turned, and then Tuvasa's left hand lands as well. So with a little bit more caution and planning, I think Hardy could have landed that lead left hook. Instead, he, he rushed in a little bit too, too much. Now... This is the advice that I give guys that I that I that I coach. I say when you see your opponent hurt, there's this line that is in uh, an older movie uh, with uh, Christopher Lambert and Diane Lane, and it's about you know murder mystery in the chess world. And I forget the scene because it's it's been so long since I saw that movie, and that was in the theater, so I never w- watched it again. But there's this point about, uh, I think a chess master, grandmaster, or in a book, there's this mention, how, how do you make your, your next move? How do you make a move? The first thing you do is think to yourself, careful, careful, careful. The idea behind that is that you plan ahead. That is the essence of chess, is that you plan so many moves ahead, you may do a lot of strategic and tactical thinking to figure out what the best move is and how it can be countered. We do the same thing in MMA and other combat sports. So there, that's the relevance there. There's a saying, only fools rush in. And I think that is applicable here. Hardy rushed in a little bit too quickly. Again, not as bad as we've seen other people do. But he could have been more careful. And I think he had a really good shot at knocking Taito Vasa out. So again, that's a bit of a shame. Now, going back to Tuivasa. 
he's a savage. I mean, the guy's a savage. He's he's big, he's strong, he hits really hard, um, despite his clearly not being the most uh, athletically built person in the world. So, let, so I'm being very polite here. Uh, he's a pretty good athlete. He's He's got pretty good technique. He, he's fluid. He moves fluid. He's fairly fast for a heavyweight. And and he hits really hard. And as we can see, he's got a good chin. Um, right. So what's not to like? Well, <laughs> that, that, you know, kind of disgusting thing, drinking from a shoe. <laughs> Do, I mean, okay, I get it. We can all we can all get behind being young and impulsive and uh, and that kind of stuff. And I'm, it's not really a big deal, obviously. But that was like, dude, of all the things you can do to celebrate your victory, that's the one. I mean, stick to the fun fun dance that you do, or maybe it's a Maori thing. I don't know what it is, but uh, uh, let me quickly check if he's Maori. He's from New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken, uh, or from Australia. I'm not quite sure. I was born in Sydney, right? But he's got a Samoan dad, right? So maybe that has something to do with his heritage. I have no idea, but the, the, the dance celebration is so much better than drinking from that shoe. So, dude, <laughs> if you want to be a big name in uh, in the UFC, you might want to think a little bit about your image. Just just a thought. But to Ivasa, it kind of strikes me as a guy who doesn't care about anything, and he just does his thing, and he's having a good time. And he more or less said so. Uh, after the fight, it's like, I don't care who I fought next. I just want to put on the show. So in that regard, I get it. And that makes perfect sense. Now back to the fight. Well, we didn't really learn anything about Tuavasa either. Because the fight ended fairly quickly. And we didn't see anything new from him. Uh, nothing that we didn't know already. So we got a knockout. But not the best fight ever. So what's next for Tuavasa? No idea. Again, he said he'll pretty much fight anybody. So uh, I don't know. We'll we'll see. He's probably you know going to move up in the heavyweight division a little bit, and they're going to put him together with somebody else. Uh, who we'll see. Probably somebody on the losing end of one of the previous heavyweight fights, uh, but not too highly ranked. Greg Hardy. That's back to the drawing board for him. Don't see what he's going to do next. We'll see. Um, you know, he also has time working against him because he's 32 right now so i don't think again same thing especially with the the little the the the, the little career that he's had so far little in uh, years meaning that um i don't think he's he's going to stick around for another five years so if he's if he wants something to happen he's gonna have to make it happen really really fast he can still turn it around maybe but it will have to happen, you know, uh, sooner rather, rather than later. Because he lost his last two fights. He won the two before that. But, you know, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But I don't think it's going, it's going well for him. I mean, he, uh, he got knocked out or, you know, technical knockout in the last two fights. So eventually... The UFC is going to say, like, dude, you know, you've got the name, you bring in some fans from your previous career, but not good enough, and bye-bye. So we'll see. Right, two more fights to go. Okay, quickly, uh, Burns uh, against Wonderboy. Mm, there was some booing in the crowd because Burns didn't just rush forward into all the kicks that Stephen Thompson could uh, throw at him. Um, I, I disagree. I think Burns fought a really smart fight. 
Uh, he was a lot smarter than a lot of Wonderboy's opponents in that he didn't didn't just give Wonderboy all the things he likes to do, meaning kicking from a long distance, uh, angling off and then shooting back in with straight punches and so on. He didn't really give Thompson all that many shots at that. It happened a few times. There was a very nice um, side sidekick on the retreat from Wonderboy as Burns stepped in and just nailed Burns to the body with that sidekick. So, so that was really great, but um, other than that, not too many moments in stand-up where Thompson could actually hurt him or, or do some damage. Now, that said, when it went to the ground, it was pretty much a one-way street. I mean, Gilbert Burns is a, is a really high-level grappler, as we know, So, and, and it's clear that Thompson wasn't really, he wasn't really at that level. Um, watch the fight again. I don't think you can say that when they were on the ground, Thompson was doing all that much. When they were up against the cage, same thing. It looked to me a lot more that he was trying to survive and not get taken down as opposed to actively trying to make something. There were a few times when he, when he, when he was more active, but overall, you know, can't really say that, that he worked all that hard on the ground or up against the cage. Burns did. When you compare the two, I think it's fair to say that Burns was a lot more active and he, uh, he he basically tried to win the fight and I think deservedly won it. Now, that said, something I want to point out. So I mentioned before the the sides, sideways stands. Um, so Stephen Thompson uses the something very close to, you know, more uh, the older style PKA, American karate, full contact fighting, American kickboxing style with no leg kicks. And and it looks to be mainly inspired inspired by Super Superfoot Wallace, Bill Wallace's style of working from a side horse stance and only using the lead leg. Stephen Thompson also uses the back leg, I know. But that that way of fighting was mostly used in the 70s, 80s, a little bit in the 60s as well, depending on, on who you count. So that is an, an, an old way of competing. And Thompson makes it work for him. He adapted it to his style and to work in uh, in MMA rules. And, he, and it's nice. And I have nothing against that. Um, me, my, when I was younger, this is one of the styles that I studied when I competed. And uh, I, I, I used to do a lot of lead leg stuff and fight sideways as well. And then switch stances and switch to more of a, a, a Muay Thai style uh, stance and so on. But it's something that I worked on a lot when I was younger. And, and it can work. Now, back in the day, let's say 10, 15 years ago, I'm on record as saying that I don't think that can that can work anymore when it comes to MMA rules. And it took Stephen Thompson to prove me wrong. But on the other hand, I think it also proves me right because he's the only one who does it. Uh, or the only one we see who successfully does it. So I think we're coming to the point where, you know, there's a level of opposition that Wonderboy is facing that is more than high enough to counteract his particular style. And and this is also what I mentioned about Sean O'Malley with, with Thompson, because he's usually the tallest guy with the longest range. And he's really good with his kicking techniques. He understands them very well. He knows the range of each technique perfectly. He's got great timing and precision with them. But he is reliant on that range. 
if he faces somebody who's his uh, size, um, uh, his height, sorry, I think it's going to be a different game if that person has good timing too. If he, if that person fights the way that Burns fought, then I think uh, it's going to be a, a very, a very different, a very different ball game. And I think that's something that we saw play out here in the stand-up, in that um, I think you could see that Burns was was sometimes getting close to tagging. Wonder Boy a little bit as he tried to get close. Not really like like full bore because he still needed to cover that distance, but he was he was getting some good stuff done. So and, and one more point we, we've got the that famous exchange when they're both kind of punching each other in the face at the same time and not like giving up. And that's the the, the 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 infamous fight between between Don Fry and I'm I think his name was Takayama, the Japanese fighter where they're both standing in the corner of the ring and just grabbing each other's head and, and non-stop bashing each other in the face with fists and so on. So that was reminiscent of that. And, and this is something I want to point out because somebody mentioned this. You can see that Stephen, um, he's got this, you know, all-American, you know, good guy vibe. And I think he's genuinely a, a nice guy. It looks like it. You always see him, you know, touch gloves in the beginning of each round. Uh, you don't really see him trash talk anybody. So... People sometimes mistake that for weakness. And But Thompson has a warrior's heart too. We've seen that in previous fights. And when you saw that exchange where Burns starts, you know, punching him in the face and holding him and so on, you know, what Thompson just gave it back to him. And, and at the end of that exchange, the rounds ends and he's smiling. And that's what I mean. You don't have to be an asshole to be a good MMA fighter. You don't have to be a Conor McGregor and talk shit all the time to be a good MMA fighter and have a good career. career. So that's that's the last thing I wanted to mention. And No, one more thing. So the, the, the fight finishes with Burns going apeshit and throwing, you know, those downward strikes. Um, I don't think he did any real 12-6 uh, to 6 elbows. Uh, I don't think he really hit the back of the head, so he hit more the shoulders and the back. Uh, is that illegal... Um, maybe technically so. I'm I'm inclined to give him a pass on this thing here, um, just because it was such a savage moment. <laughs> so, so deserved victory for Burns. Um, we'll see where he goes from here. I, would, I think he deserves to get you know um, another opponent ranked up a little bit higher. I think Wonder Boy is coming basically to the limits of what he can pull off physically speaking and that he's very very soon going to end up having to yeah maybe hang up the gloves i mean he's 38 um he lost his fight won his previous two lost the the previous two you know then not a win not a loss a draw i mean we know he has injuries we know he has a uh, uh, knee problems and so on he's, he's publicly stated that he hasn't been very regular. One fight this year, one fight last year, two fights in 2019, one in 2018. So he's not been that regular. And time passes on and waits for nobody. Again, at, at his age, he's 38. The, the odds of him going for a title shot now are very, very low. He could surprise us, but I think we might have to 
except that this is pretty much the the end of him. Um, I'm sure he'll fight again in the UFC for sure. It's going to happen again, but more maybe in a gatekeeping fashion for up and coming talents. But he has Wonderboy has no claim to to ask any other higher ups to fight him right now. So we'll see. Okay, and the, now the the main event: Dustin Poirier against Conor McGregor. What to say? <laughs> a lot of trash talking from McGregor. You know, and, and I'm not a big fan of that. And I, I very much more preferred McGregor the way he was with um, with the previous fight with Dustin. A lot more amicable, clearly showing respect and so on. A little bit of, of you know, uh, a zinger here and there, but nothing really all that outrageous. And then now all this crap that he was shooting again, you know, I'm going to make you leave on a stretcher and then and, and your wife's in my DMs or posting all that stuff. It's it's just like, I mean, dude, you've been doing this song and dance for so long, and and you've been inconsistent with it because when you lose fights, then all of a sudden you play the good guy and now you play the heel again. And I get it; a lot of people are into the drama, but it needs to be believable. It needs to be something that we can not just simply shake our heads at, like you know, um, the king of cringe when he started trash talking yeah that was not very believable and it, it just didn't work and and McGregor used to be really good at it but now it's just over the top so I'll, I'll get more to it at the end but um, let's talk about the fight so I had said publicly that I thought if it goes long um, Poirier is probably going to win first two rounds probably McGregor if he can uh, do enough damage and, and knock Dustin out I was a little bit surprised at Dustin's uh, reaction. I didn't expect that. Um, McGregor did uh, some f- some good adaptations. So he started leg kicking and using high kicks, push kicks, the two spinning back kicks from the get-go. So basically, he started sniping at a distance um, at, at, at Poirier. I think that was a good strategy. He was not overly relying on his punching, as he did in the previous fight. Watch the previous two fights back-to-back, both first rounds. You'll see that previous fight, loads of punching, not a lot of kicking. This time, the inverse. So I think that is a good adaptation. And, you know, we'll never know how it would have played out over the long run. But it was clear that this seemed to be working with him. He pretty much landed every leg kick. And Dustin said he blocked them. I looked in slow motion at all the leg kicks McGregor threw. There was one, I think the second or third one, that I think you might make a case that Dustin blocked it. The problem is a little bit that I don't have access to um, high frame rate, um, high high quality, high definition video where you can see frame by frame, let's say 60 or 120 frames per second. That's not what the UFC um, you know, <laughs> shows. So they usually bring out a few days or a week later, uh, these you know moments of the fight where you see in super slow motion certain things, maybe they will bring that out and then we can see for sure. We, we need frame-by-frame analysis and it needs to be a high frame rate. Uh, 30 frames per second just isn't enough. So I'm waiting for that, but I didn't see much in, in support of Dustin's theory that he keeps sticking to. I mean, I haven't watched much today, but like yesterday, it was in all the interviews saying that, yeah, yeah, I for sure blocked it and I felt something and I'm pretty sure about that and so on. I didn't see that. Um, So more about that in the end. Now, that brings us to McGregor's leg kick. 
Now, blatant plug for my book, The Leg Kick um, for Mixed Martial Arts. Um, in that book, I write about a lot of things, obviously how to do the leg kick, but I have a few case studies. The first, the second fight of McGregor versus Nate Diaz, he was very much leg kick um, focused. So what a lot of people do against Nate because he doesn't block anything is kick him in the legs. When you watch McGregor use leg kicks against Diaz, you'll see that he's not very good at them back then. And technically speaking, there was a lot of a lot wrong with them. And he never managed to really make Nate pay for not blocking those leg kicks for five rounds straight. After the fight, Connor was limping. Again, you can look all this up. He was limping. He had injured his own leg, kicking so hard with it. Now, contrast that with um, Rafael Dos Anjos fighting Nate Diaz, kicking him in the legs only a few times and having Nate limping after a minute and a half. That is a difference between somebody who has done leg kicks for years, if not decades, and uses them routinely versus someone like McGregor who hardly ever throws them in a fight. Now, before you get all upset, rewatch every single one of McGregor's fights. Count the number of leg kicks he throws. And you'll notice that he hardly ever uses them. Now, in my not-so-humble opinion, but I, I'm willing to be proven wrong, but I think he made the same mistake he did against Diaz. He lost the first fight to Diaz, went back with his, with his coaches and figured out a game plan. That game plan was leg kick heavy, and he starts trading leg kicks over and over. Here's the thing. You don't harden your shin bone and develop a good leg kick on, in only a few months' time, because that's, that's what he did. He didn't wait five years to fight uh, Nate again. Same thing here. He figured out that I'm going to have to use leg kicks to stop Dustin. So he started working leg kicks again. And then, you know, we, we, we saw the same thing happen. The fight with Dustin was only a few months ago. And we have the rematch now. And all of a sudden, he does a lot of leg kicks. I would say that his leg kicks were better this time. Um, I wouldn't say they were perfect. But they were, I mean, far superior to the way that he threw them against Nate Diaz. Now, here's the thing. Um... If you think that you can harden your shin bones to throw full power leg kicks in a fight in a few months' time, and I'm not discounting the fact that McGregor has been throwing kicks against heavy backs, kicking shields, and so on for many years, not discounting that, but his kicking style is a lot more like what you see. Um, it's closer to karate style, taekwondo style, and so on. It is not as much Muay Thai style the way we normally see it happen. And you can look at any of the Muay Thai specialists in the, in, in the UFC or, or in MMA, compare their round kicks and body kicks and leg kicks and high kicks and all the other kicks they do with what McGregor does. So that is that is something that I think uh, we, we can clearly say that that's not McGregor's style. He's not Muay Thai heavy, uh, heavily invested. It looks a lot more like, like the point fighting and the karate style um, type type kicking techniques with power it's not that he's lacking power it's just a different kind of power different kinds of impact you can't just expect to transition into um, an extremely heavy kicking leg kick style out of the blue 
all that to say this, um, he might actually uh, have injured his leg in training, kicking so hard, kicking using leg kicks all the time. Now, what are some of the potential reasons why his leg snapped? Um, bunch of things. So, when you harden your legs, when you harden the shin bones and so on by constant exposure to impact, what eventually happens is, yes, they do become harder, stronger and so on. However, they also become more brittle. What does brittle mean? Brittle means that if they break, they tend to break completely. So yes, the bone is stronger, but it also breaks more easily. So that's one thing. There might also have been uh, a hairline fracture. Hairline fracture means that there's a small fracture in the bone that you don't necessarily feel. Sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't. The, the point is that it actually weakens the structural integrity of the bone a fair amount, but you won't know it. If it heals correctly, the, it's just gone after a while and, and that's the end of it. But if it's still there, because you've been training so hard and you have to keep on training with leg kicks because you've got, you know, your, your fight strategy is based on it. And then, you know, you get that hairline fracture, it hurts for a little bit, you back off a little bit and then you start kicking with it again and maybe it hurts, but, you know, it, you can do it. Well, that never really heals correctly. And then something goes wrong during the fight and then it just snaps. Now, it could just be a regular stress fracture from uh, the way that he um, he put pressure on his foot to do that punch. Because if you look closely, you can see that as he throws that big punch, you see the bone actually already wobble a little bit. So it's actually already broken. And then the next second or so, he he, he punches and steps back on it and, and that you see the full break. So it could be an accumulation of things. There's one factor that, and, and I've looked in slow-mo at pretty much every kick he threw with his left leg. Um, it could be that a combination of things where he, he maybe he hit the knee of, of Justin, uh, of Dustin, sorry, with one of his leg kicks. Again, there's only one leg kick that I think there might be a case, but we need a different camera angle to be sure. And slow-mo video with a high frame rate. Yeah, he, he threw some high kicks with that against the arm of Justin, of Dustin, sorry, <laughs> second time I made that mistake, sorry guys. And and maybe he hit the forearm there and have a heavy impact and just accumulating several of those heavy impacts and that that weakened the leg. But there's one point that I want to make and um, I looked closely. And again, this is maybe because uh, we don't have the right camera angles. And before I say it, understand that I've been making instructional videos for pretty much 20 years now camera angles matter there is a reason why you see the instant replay after a knockout or at the end of uh, of a round from different camera angles because the information you get will change with each camera angle if you only get one camera angle that hides certain aspects but highlights certain others you could be totally wrong about your interpretation of what you just saw so always be careful making those blanket statements oh, it was this oh it was that clearly no it's not how it works so with that in mind there's only one camera angle and the frame rate was not high enough for me to slow it down enough to see but it looks like it that right before he breaks his leg um and you can you see it fold he throws this big push kick with his left leg really big and 
you can see that that Poirier has his guard up and his right arm is in a guard position and his elbow is pointing down. Now again, I couldn't get the right frame to see it actually happen, but I think there might be a case there that he basically kicked the point of the elbow or the, the forearm or something along the, those lines. But it's, it's likely the point of the elbow of, uh, of Poirier and that that's what broke it. And then he steps back. It's not fully broken yet. He pushes off it to throw that punch and then it fully breaks. Or it could be that that was the last straw that breaks the camel's back with all the previous stuff that could be going on. Existing injury, hairline fracture, uh, hitting the knee or the arms of Dustin during the fight. Could be all these things combined. But like I said, the UFC typically does like a, a super slow motion series of videos that they release. So I'm wondering if they might show that and maybe we can see a different camera angle and exactly see if he's hitting the elbow of Dustin with that push kick. Now, why do I say that? This is one of the tricks that I pulled off when I competed is if somebody was clumsy with their push kicks and in, in particular, if they did snap kicks and a snap kick is a rising kick. So a push kick goes into a straight line, but a front snap kick, uh, it's more like what Lyoto Mashida used to do where he knocked people out and Anderson Silva did it, did it as well. So it's a circular path of the kick and you hit with the ball of the foot in an, in an, in an upward angle as opposed to a horizontal one you see in a push kick. A lot of guys used to throw them like that. What I would do if I competed is I would present the point of my elbow. So I tended to have a, a pretty high guard and I would present the point of my elbow for him to crush his foot upon. I might have a, a little bit of damage on my elbow and it might be a little bit in pain, but he, at worst, has a broken foot. Um, the, the least is that he, he would be in pain. Having been on the receiving end of that technique as well, <laughs> I know it just hurts like you wouldn't believe. So if you kick somebody really hard, point of the elbow and, and at the wrong spot on your shin and there's already some damage there, I can clearly see that breaking. So, um, oh yeah, and final point about that, um, in my class, when guys spar, they're not, not allowed to do that one. Because if you do it consistently, you do it well, and, and there's some other tricks like that, uh, limb destruction, blocks, and so on, um, they're not allowed to do that. I teach it, and then I say, right, so this is what we call the dark arts, the forbidden arts, is that you can use this in competition, you cannot use it in sparring, because I don't want all the students and um, the guys in, in my class to end up injured. Because that's what will happen. It's not that these are techniques that are too lethal to use. It's bullshit. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's a bunch of dirty tricks that all fighters know. That if you do that, the other guy gets damaged. Well, I don't want them in class. But in competition, it's clearly legal. You can do that. You can block with your elbows. Nothing wrong with that. So... That is something that I'm curious to see if we if we will ever see if it's a, a check leg kick or something else that that was basically the end of McGregor there. Now, when you watch the fight, you see that Dustin doesn't back off, and you know he eats those elbows, but he doesn't back off. He doesn't shy away, and he actually tries to come forward. And there's this one phase right before they go to the ground, where you see that he's kind of rushing in. And he, he, he tags Connor with a good, good, good punch. Connor backs up a little bit. And Poirier immediately tries to close the distance again and throws this quick combination. And you can see that McGregor's not all there because he just basically 
you know, closing his guard and almost ducking, trying to duck a little bit. And he gets this short little uppercut. And then Poirier drives forward again. They end up clinching and, and going to the ground when McGregor foolishly, in my opinion, goes for that guillotine. Um, my point is that that Dustin clearly respects McGregor's striking, but also believes in his own striking a whole lot more since their last fight. And that was very nice to see. I, I didn't expect... Um, Dustin to be able to pull it off right away. I thought he was going to go maybe a little bit more for the countering like he did in the previous fight. But he he just came right at Connor. So that was very nice to see. And then we get to basically the the, uh, the last part of the round, which was first up against the fence. Connor jumps into that guillotine. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't think he had it. Um, and once on the ground, I mean, Dustin's a pretty good ground guy. <laughs> He's... His ground game is uh, is nothing to sneeze at. If I'm not mistaken, he got his BJJ black belt a little while ago. Uh, he's good. He knows what he's doing. So uh, he managed that really well and then threw some ferocious ground and pound at times with uh, elbows, punches, and so on. Uh, McGregor did a few nice ones. He has this, this really nice slicing elbows that he does from bottom position. Uh, really interesting. He, he did that against Chad Mendes as well, and he's good at it. He's really good at it. I think it has to do with his wide frame. He's got fairly wide shoulders uh, and a narrow waist, so that means that he the, the angles that he can uh, generate with his elbow strikes from that position are different from somebody with a more narrow frame. So um, he's, he's really good at that, but didn't really manage to mess up Dustin all that much. And and then obviously, you know, we saw how it ended. Um he takes a beating, pretty much nothing too bad. He was still defending intelligently, but I think it's fair to say that Dustin was basically dominating McGregor on, on during that whole period when he, he, he was on his back on the ground. I think nobody, not even the biggest Conor McGregor fan, will argue that you know McGregor was winning that part of the exchanges. I don't think that would be reasonable at all. So um, we get to the little cheating that Dustin pointed out. Uh, McGregor was hooked, hooking into the gloves of Poirier to control his arm. That is clearly illegal. Um, but then they get up and, and the fight's over very quickly. And I already covered that. But now we get to the last part. You know, uh, what was it that McGregor said a while ago? Something like, you know, humble in defeat... Uh, Gracious in defeat, humble in victories, something along those lines, I forget. That that was a long time ago, apparently, and, and you could see that what he was yelling at, you know, he was, to me, it looked like he was a combination of furious, frustrated, angry, disappointed, all mixed together, and his true colors showed. He was losing it. So all the things that he was yelling and saying, I mean, said to Joe Rogan, I was boxing the guy's head off, I was kicking his leg off, and so on. No, you weren't. You did that for maybe like the first minute or so, and then you were on the ground getting your ass beat. So there's this cognitive dissonance probably that the, the number of elbows that Dustin threw at your head kind of messed up your memory maybe, and that can happen. But um, watch the fight again, and and even McGregor will probably see that he was he was not you know, doing all that great in that first round in total. At first, yes, I'll very much agree with that. But as soon as it went to the fence and then the ground, that's it. I mean, there was, McGregor was not winning that. I would have loved to see the scorecards 
if we ever got to, if any judges did that, um, it would be amazing if they all gave it to McGregor or if one of them gave it to McGregor. So that's the first part. The second part is that he's then, you know, makes that comment about Dustin's wife again in his DMs. He's go shouting. Uh, it has to be, um, has to be a medical stoppage and so on. I, I, I saw this video uh, this morning uh, as I woke up, and it's pretty much the only one that I that I saw. <laughs> he's from the hospital, going like, "Yeah, you know, I uh, just had surgery. I feel great." And you know, Dustin, you didn't do anything in that first round. And I was like, "Dude, he elbowed the crap out of your face." And you were in bottom position the whole time. You didn't get anything going. Uh, both guillotine attempts were completely blocked off. Uh, so, so <laughs> where do you get that whole point of, you know, you didn't do anything, Dustin? Quite the opposite is true. Now, there's the trash talking. Obviously, there's trying to get, uh, you know, get some hype going and, and uh, do some marketing. But still, it needs to be believable. And that's basically where we are with McGregor is that his trash talking game is becoming a little bit weaker because the track record is also becoming weaker. It's it's not like he's been doing, you know, all that great. When you look at the last few fights and, and you know, this sport stops for nobody. I, I think he's starting to get that now that at one point he was the biggest name around, but those years are pretty much gone. That's that's pretty much it. So when you look at, I mean, I'm just going back. So he fought 2016 twice, three times, sorry. Nate Diaz twice and then Eddie Alvarez. 2018 once in 2020, once and two times in 2021. So that's not all that much in five years. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven fights in five years. That is not a lot. You only fall three times in 2015, and that's pretty much it. So if you want to be the biggest name in the sport, you're going to have to do more of that. Now, if you look at all those fights, Nate Diaz, Khabib, twice losing to Poirier, that's not an impressive record. We can we can say that yeah, but it was high-level opposition, fine, but, but again, you didn't win. So Khabib can go basically into posterity and never never really fight again and he can say i never lost and <laughs> as far as we know it's right i'm looking at his at his uh his mma record right now we've got 29 wins zero losses well if we look now at uh mcgregor's records we're going to see that he's got six losses 22 wins 28 matches so uh, a loss doesn't define who you are as a, as a champion, as a fighter. Uh, and we can even look at GSP, who's arguably one of the greatest fighters of all time. Uh, look at his record. So a loss doesn't define you. It's how you recover from that loss. Well, he lost twice to Poirier now. And we can talk about, you know, leg injury, right? Not right. But again, be honest. Watch the whole first round and, and try to justify your claim, if you have it, that McGregor was winning that round. Because I don't see it. And I think anybody who has no axe to grind won't see it. So will McGregor fight again? Pretty sure he will. Um, is that a good idea? Well, you know, I don't know. 
Um, the guy's made so much money, so I don't think he uh, he needs it anymore. I think it's all about ego, legacy, and so on at this stage. He's 32, so if he wants to fight, it's going to have to be after recovery. And, and I think he should be at least six months, if not longer. So that is one aspect of it. Um, who will he fight next? For sure, not, not for the title. I cannot see anybody making a claim of uh, of giving him an instant side title shot. That's just not in the cards. Uh, you never know with the UFC, but I kind of <laughs> I just don't see it. Whereas what we see in the last um, two years, Dustin has fought three times and won three times. His loss was uh, to Khabib in 2019. Uh, 2020, 2021, three wins. Dan Hooker and then twice Conor McGregor. So he's got a legitimate title shot um, and going after Charles Oliveira, which which is a fight I'd love to see. I think that's going to be a, a really fun fight. And hopefully uh, we, we get some good standing uh, phases, but also some ground game. I want to see those guys on the ground, see what happens. But that's probably next for him. I think Dana White already said that, you know, Dustin Poirier is going to get the next title shot. McGregor's going to come back. I, I really doubt that he will stop fighting. I think he he wants to secure a legacy. The only thing that I could see happen is that his rehabilitation, um, his, um, uh, his rehab uh, from the surgery doesn't go well. There are complications, and that might be maybe be for him that the point where he decides, like, okay, you know, after my family, my great grandkids won't have to work. Um, uh, the injuries aren't worth it. I'm I'm gonna start right here. That's the only thing I think I can see why he would stop fighting. But I cannot see that man stopping on a loss. I can't see that. Uh, I think his ego is a little bit too big for that. And you need a big ego to be a champion. You need a big ego to be a martial artist and in, in a combat sport and fight there and try to be the best. Um, because it's all about you and you have to believe in yourself and so on. So there's that. But... I think we can now safely say that McGregor is basically, his ego is more than big enough. Right. So that's pretty much it, guys. That That's it for um, this episode of the podcast. Uh, I just wanted to, again, get back in the game and cover UFC 264. Uh, it was a fun card. I'll, I'll see if I can do uh, some sort of, of bonus episode. Maybe maybe the fight of Ryan Hall against uh, Topuria. Uh, I think that, that was interesting. And and maybe talk about that a little bit. Let me know if you have questions or comments or things you want me to cover. Uh, I want to do an episode on, on listener questions because I like to do those. Always fun. And uh, if not, I'll just keep working on bringing out some more uh, knockout analysis videos for my YouTube channel and then do some more work on Patreon. Right, that's it. Okay, guys, have fun. Um, stay safe. Stay healthy. Train hard. I want you to guilty and choke the crap out of the like, subscribe, and notification button wherever you're listening to this. Uh, give me an honest review. That, those always help. That, that helps the show grow. And, and, you know, if you enjoy this, come listen to the podcast next time. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the MMA Formula Podcast. For more information, go to www.mmaformula.com.